0: So welcome to another episode of Comic Book Historians. Today we have a special guest, Tim Sale. I'm here with my trusty co-host, Jim Thompson. Jim, how are you doing? You shouldn't trust me,
1: Alex. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. Don't yeah, he's a, I never, trust, trust, never trust
0: lawyers, ladies and gentlemen, but I do trust Jim, though. Today we're with Tim Sale, a comic book author and artist for the past 30 or so years. He has both an extremely talented visual storytelling ability and uh, also a historical perspective, as he does make comic book history commentary on social media, which is always fascinating to read. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, my pleasure. I want to start from the beginning. You were born in 1956. Yeah. You were born in New York when you were six years old. Your father bought... Well, he wasn't born in New York when he was six years old. No, that's well, also a true statement. Well done. Lawyers, you know, you got to yeah, watch I
2: was, out. I was born in Ithaca, New York. Ithaca, in- okay. Which is my father's hometown... His father was an English professor at Cornell, Hmm. and uh, when my father, well, when we became a family, we moved to Amherst, Massachusetts, and my dad was a very young, very uh, cocky professor of English at at Amherst, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was my first six years. Mm -hmm. I don't remember, we moved from Ithaca when I was three weeks old, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. Amherst was my Period. Mm-hmm.
0: And when you were six, you guys moved to the West Coast. Yeah. And your father bought your first comics for you.
2: Yeah, to amuse me in the car because <laughs> we drove. Uh huh. And he didn't know anything about them. He knew I liked adventure stuff. Yeah. So, like um, Mizoro and Robin Hood, all these vigilante, semi costumed her- heroic people. Uh huh. Of, some of that was Disney. So these are like Dell comics uh, from well, 1961. no, he didn't, he didn't. No, I don't think he bought me those kind of comics. He uh-huh. bought me superhero comics, but he, he might have bought me Millie the Model too. I don't. I don't know. I see. But what I can tell you is that when I was in my twenties, at some point, I went to a spinner rack and found a reprint of. Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number Two, Ditko, Doctor uh, Strange, Ditko and Lee. The Terrible Tinkerer was one right. of the backup. And that's a classic issue, by the way. Uh, it absolutely is. Yeah. On many levels. Mm-hmm. And I, I had this intense wave of nostalgia. Right. Oh. Almost said nausea, but uh, in nostalgia. And I figured out that that was one of the books that. Dad had bought me.
1: A Proustian kind of thing, where it brought in yeah. that, that that feeling of, yeah.
2: in that way. And looking at the, less so the Terrible Tinkerer story, although it is a wonderful one. And I did a remark of the Terrible Tinkerer last year in a sketchbook, one of my sketchbooks. That's in the slide now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was so much fun to draw. Yeah. Yeah. Whispered come out of his nose and all that shit. Um sorry, can I swear? Yes, yeah, you can, okay. you can swear. Um,
1: and he's really uh, ugly. Uh, Tinker is well, Ditko, of course yeah. it's it's, Those it's eyebrows
2: a, are like yeah. This but the you just can't improve on the on the doctor's training story. It's just everything about it is amazing. Yeah, true. Those
1: two stories, both Annual 1 and Annual 2, are, like, in terms of Ditko, those are just tour de forces. Pretty
2: Mm prime. Both
1: of those splash pages on Annual 1 just are incredible. They are.
0: Right. Yeah, he has, like, a a punchline to each of those battles with those single pages. They're incredible. Ditko's Doctor Strange, too. I mean, that was amazing. That was Pioneer stuff.
2: Yeah, that was distilled down. I mean, there's more of a formula to the Annual 1. Yeah. Because you've got to get all the villains in, and he's got to fight all the villains separately and right. defeat all of them. But separately. each
1: fight is so differently framed.
2: Yeah. That oh, no, it's extremely well done. It's well done, yeah. But it's a, a, still a formula. Kind yeah, of that's thing. true. And there's nothing predictable Where's about the, the Doctor Strange one. Without Spidey, it's a great strange story. True. Anyway, and I, I ripped off a couple of those pictures in Spider Man Blue, by the way. Nice. Some of them. Okay. Some of the punches and uh-huh. stuff like that. So that was my father's contribution to my career, Mm -hmm. as it were. Mm -hmm. But always, as I said earlier, I've been attracted to uh, adventure fiction, Mm -hmm. especially heroic, and uh, without recognizing it, people wearing costumes, Mm -hmm. masks. Right. Not everything is as wimpy as the Scarlet Pimpernel. A lot of of really good stuff out there. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Later on, it became things like the Count of Monte Cristo and just thrilling, uh, mysterious.
0: Oh, I see. So not necessarily super superpowers, uh, but no, the cost no, of the adventure. no. The
2: powers were always less interesting to me. Yeah, right. Or not the point. Mm-hmm. I should right. say that. Yeah. Because yeah. a guy who can walk up walls is pretty great. Mm-hmm.
1: Because I know your your age compared to mine.
2: Which is what we should say. In three years.
1: I'm three years younger than you. I remember going in Walden Books, and I had not read any Edgar Rice Burroughs, but those Frazetta covers of that time, those just knocked me out too in terms yeah. of that that kind of thing. And, yeah. and, and was do you were those? And now you're like what? You're like a not, teenager not, at that not, point. Not Burroughs,
2: but Conan.
1: Yeah. Well, oh, it was Conan for you. Yeah. Oh. Boy, that mm. Conan of the Samaria, number three, where the frost giants one in the blue.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful one.
1: That one just knocks me out. But so,
2: those... Uh, there are too many to mention. Uh, yeah. Just an amazing array. And I, I remember that, faked or not, there was a letter in a Silver Surfer issue where somebody posits, wouldn't it be great to have, and it's a terrible idea, uh, <laughs> have Conan meet the Silver Surfer. And... <laughs> uh, and, and, <laughs> That's, and it's they, like colliding uh, genres, right? There. And they said oh, the Sumerian and the Surfer. There's a great title. Yeah. And I went, and <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it was Roy who was answering right. letters at that point. But Roy obviously was interested in Conan and Howard, and so he wanted to respond. He wrote about it, and I said, "Well, I got to check this out." And I I went and I found the the Red Cape with with the ape. Mm-hmm. Yep. cover. Oh, yeah. And I was geez. And, <laughs> That one's amazing. And, again, I'm 14, 15. Yeah. And I couldn't believe that they didn't they were in a fight scene and they didn't stop when, it's kind of like porn when it's soft porn. and They yeah. you know, didn't stop. And yeah, so, they kept so, going. So Conan flicked out this guy's eyeball and he broke his back and, you know, I could just, you know, wow. like, Whoa! <laughs> uh, <and> I, <laughs> I never heard the porn analogy, but yeah, I could see that. Well, you don't, you do I'm not saying I relate to it. You, but don't, I, you don't, don't, you don't cut to the fireplace when the good right. stuff starts happening, right?
1: Robert e. How, <laughs> Robert e. Howard didn't cut to the fireplace, <laughs> right?
2: Yeah, that's true. And I, I just love the pulp of it. I was just right at the right age for all that, and uh, I had an Eisenhower jacket. It's four pockets inside and out, and each one had a paperback in it. Too much and, and, of Conan. And, oh, really? Uh, most, a lot of the pages where the good scenes were, <laughs> I dogged <it> down. <laughs> so if I had to wait for a bus or if I had anything, spare time. Anyway, so there was, there was that. How did I get into that? I don't but know. not Burroughs?
1: I, uh, just, no, never
2: Burroughs. I've never read any Burroughs.
1: Yeah. You've never drawn Tarzan? You yeah. never cared about any? Uh, that Cooper,
2: drawing, Tarzan is... Drawing what, Tarzan is a different thing. I haven't very much... Yep. But and I haven't drunk Conan very much.
1: No, but... I was going to ask you that because I couldn't recall <laughs> if you did it. It was like well, a... some
2: of that is just the intimidation of Rosetta. Right, right, right. I don't know that I have somebody to bring to it.
0: One thing I want to segue toward. <coughs> so, who is was who your favorite uh, Conan comic book artist? Not Busima. Not Busima. Okay, and you knew where I was segueing to, obviously.
1: There's so many. Right. Like, for that's a hard while, hard.
2: it was Smith, but it's not Smith. Right. Although The Frost Giant's Daughter is a... is a great story. Perfect. That splash page is unbelievable. The double. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the storytelling in yeah. a lot of it is really great. Adams at times? Not always. In comics, I, uh, there's another one that I really... There's no
0: one favorite. No. So one thing I want to kind of segue to is the next stage, is you were at University of Washington for a while... Then you um, left University of Washington, took some classes, John Buscema classes at the um, New York School of Visual Arts. What led to that change? No, no, he had his own workshop.
2: Workshop, okay. That he created. Yes. It was not at the School of Visual Arts.
0: I see. Oh, it was the one that he did himself. Oh, yes. I
2: see. Okay. I also was enrolled in the School of Visual Arts at the same time. Okay. But I almost never went. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, I was really there for the workshop. I see, okay. And that was three months long, three different illustrators, uh, three different um, teachers, and each one, once a week, would give a lecture and with demonstrations. The first one was Busema, and he taught anatomy, chainspoke camels or whatever, mm-hmm. the whole thing. The second one was Ramita. he taught inking and storytelling. And the third one was Marie Severin, she taught cover design, and storytelling. Mm. Holy
1: crap. That's an amazing three...
2: I mean, that, that I threesome
1: is something.
2: And, and it is often the case in real life, the real talents, not that Severin is not, was not talented. She certainly was. The real talents were not that good teachers.
0: Mm. She yeah. was the better
2: teacher. Mm-hmm. And she took a shine to me, and she uh, invited me up to uh, the bullpen,
0: Oh really, Murray did? Cool. Yeah. yeah,
2: and I think Shooter was the head Jim Shooter of the head of the
0: bullpen then. What and year? So that was like seventy seventy six. Seventy six. Okay, so that was probably Archie Goodwin. Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong.
2: I don't. I don't know. I Not don't, sure. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. 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 And Marie had seen some of my ink wash stuff. Yeah. Which I don't know how. Right? Not published yet, right? No, I mean, just just no, seen it. I don't just, know, you know. She must have asked. I, I can't remember. And they had people doing in, in the black and white comics. They would just come in and do like light tone over inks, uh-huh. ink wash. Yeah. Right? Oh, that, Pablo Marcos. Uh-huh, yeah.
1: yeah, you know that kind of thing. flood was doing stuff only from his his pencils at that point for like Planet of the Apes and things. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they were, and Tom Sutton too. They were doing it directly. They weren't even inking
2: it at that point. So it was reproduced from the pencils. Yeah,
1: reproduced from the
2: pencils. Actual pencil. Yeah. So not grease paint, grease pencil, or.
1: I, my understanding is okay. that with both of those they were doing pencils. Okay. Reproduction. I could be wrong. You're a more a tech guy than,
2: obviously. Well, Adams did some of that in the in the. Keeping you Eerie stuff. Oh yeah, that's the true. First issue of Vampirella, a great story with the artist in the in the studio, and he looks out the yep by the sea, and this vixen comes out of the world. yeah. <laughs> that's all pencil.
0: Right, right. Those are some pretty bizarre stories, by the way. Whoever wrote those, that was kind of Ar- that's Archie.
1: Oh, it was oh yeah. Oh, that's cool. God, good one when
2: he was doing the Warren stuff. That was that was golden. That I motherfucker mean- did. Seven. There's seven stories yeah. in each one of those things. Right, right. And, and he did all those, huh? And he did oh. almost all the stories in all three of the books. Oh, that's cool. For at least three, four years.
1: Yeah. And he was writing stuff like for Ditko that just nailed Ditko. Well, I talked to him about that. Um, to Goodwin. Yeah. Oh, please tell us about that because that's that's awesome.
2: Well, he was our editor on Long Halloween. Oh, that's right. And uh, he got sick during that. But he was also our editor for all the Batman stuff before, so all the Alameda specials. Archie was the editor on that. And he could draw, but he was more of a writer's editor. So he was extremely important for Jeff, who was still learning his ropes. And that's Jeff Lowe. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, But he would call and just give a note. You know that... Uh, panel where Batman shadows on the wall and he scares the villain and his cigarette drops out of his mouth, that's great. (laughs) Okay, see you later. But Uh, you know that he looked at the book. Yeah. yeah. took him five minutes to give back something like that. Nobody does that. Right. Nobody did it then. Nobody does it now, for sure. Wow.
1: It's so clear in in looking at those Warren Ditkos that he understood exactly
2: what Ditko could do. That led to he, he and I having conversations because, not unlike you and me, Jim, I was a fan and a thoughtful fan of what he did and was very curious about his relationship. And he talked about, he was the first person I heard say this, and Jeff does this too. Part of the job of a writer in comics is to know who your artist is And write, to their strengths and away from their weaknesses. Right. And the easiest way to do that is to ask them what they want to do and what they don't want to do. And he would do that. So he would say to Toth, what do you feel like drawing? And Toth would say, an airplane fight in the sky. Right. And he'd write. Yep. You know. Because
1: why wouldn't you have Toth do it? Well, what sky. do you
2: want to do? Uh, you, yeah. know, you don't want to do that? What do you want to do? Uh, subterranean creatures. Great. Sounds good. I'll yeah. come up with something. Right. That's cool. And, but for Ditko, you know, from, you just look at things like the fly with the, the closed room story. The guy all bandaged, wrapped in bandages and, you no? Know? Yeah. Yeah. Compared to uh, the ruby. Oh, the ruby is so good. You know, that's Ditko oh, saying, man. well, you know. That oh no hey hey, mister you want to buy a ruby right and then well, the, it ends the, with the collector hey, mister, with, want to buy a... the
1: collector with those eye yeah, things that, that nobody was doing I mean like that was no. brilliant
2: so he went to the artist and said what do you want to do and that was half his job then at that point because Archie was like 18 when right? he got this job yeah yeah and his brain was just going a mile Constantly a minute so going. okay I can do that I can, I can write something like that right you're going to tell you're going to be the genius in this. I'm just the guy helping That's me. cool. Yeah. So, no, it was amazing. So now,
0: and, and this is going to segue to the 80s with this particular question. So fun, So some of your first type work, it was non-superhero, and Jim's going to ask more about this, was a magic series called Myth Adventures in 1983. How did you get into that? Tell us a little bit about how you got into that.
2: Um, I never heard of the the books. There were a series of books. Uh-huh they were popular. Right. And they were illustrated by a guy named Phil Folio. Uh-huh. The books were. The and books. the Peenies were traveling the country going to comic book stores because they were interested in expanding work graphics into mm. publishing things outside of ElfQuest. Mm. And I knew one of the managers of Golden Age Collectibles, which is mm. a local Seattle shop. And he called me and said, look, Looking for anchors. Oh, that's great! And at that point, I thought that's what I'm. I want to be as an yeah. anchor. So you had a good relationship with those people at Golden Age Collectibles yeah. at
0: the time. Yeah, so, okay, I've been there. That's a nice. That's a nice place. Yeah. So, it,
1: so was that because you were not confident about your own storytelling? It absolutely was. Okay. I,
2: when I came back from the workshop, I was sure I didn't know how to do it. Now, this was the the Golden Age thing was. Eight years after, coming back from New York. Right. So I'd uh, absorbed a lot of other stuff in between and just gotten older, figured stuff out. Uh, The black and white boom of which Elf Quest was a part was happening. That
1: and Sim were the two big ones, right? Dave
2: Sim was the biggest influence on me. But there were other Tom McQueenie was doing some stuff that I just loved.
1: And you're also a fan
0: of Alex Toth, right?
2: Yeah.
1: But now, did you reach out to Sim at all? Did you ever have a project with, uh, with Ardvac, Ardvac no. Vanheim? No.
2: I, no, I was too scared. But I don't, know, I don't know that they were doing stuff like that. I wasn't aware that they were interested in publishing other stuff. Until later. Because they or did Bob Burton and... Right. Okay. But that wasn't anything I was really interested in. I wasn't, that's not my kind of, my niche of comics. Yeah. Um. I'd seen Dave at... at Shows and stuff like that. In fact, he was the first person I ever heard say this bit of wisdom, which is absolutely true to this day. He was being adored by fans somewhere, and he said, "Look, in here, I'm a superstar. I go out to lunch. Nobody knows who the fuck I am. I like it that way. You know." It. it he didn't say Brad Pitt. But let's. But let's say. Yeah, I, I get it. He can't go out to lunch and nobody knows what he is. There's no darkness to hide in. And I thought that was great and smart. uh, But his storytelling and the way, especially before Gerhard, I think I may have mentioned this on the board, on your board. I didn't read it after Gerhard came in. Oh, that's really interesting to me. I liked the high wire act of he wrote, penciled, inked, lettered a book a month. And he did that. For quite a while. And it was good. And he took a lot of shortcuts. I didn't care. I mean, it's like early Frank Miller, Daredevil. You know, people would say, oh, you can read it in 10 minutes. Yeah, but look at this. Right. There's nothing else like this out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he could tell a story without words, really.
1: Well, Sim was doing that constantly in that epic Illustrated. He was doing epic illustrated Serapis, and those were just without words storytelling. Mm -hmm. And it was brilliant.
2: Well, there was a, a page recently on my fan page that uh, somebody posted. That it, I guess it had just come up on eBay. And it was a Thieves World page. And it was so who, Cerebus. Oh, that like, you did? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It was, That's uh, so funny. The establishing shot. First of all, it's all almost no backgrounds except for the establishing shot. And it's black gutters all the way around. Well, not to the end of the page, but... A black rectangle and then black gutters within that, right? Mm -hmm. So, which is so much of what Cerberus was because he, he would just do, he would sell out on one or two panels an issue and the rest of it was people talking and it was compelling. Right. Because he wrote it so goddamn well. Right. And you didn't care that, you didn't feel cheated. At least yeah. I didn't
1: no he understood how to he understood and, comics
2: and that that uh, that was a real difference
1: maker to me i am with you so that was that period and and you were born in that moment and and I want to say to my segue into things. I was doing research today on, on, on your stuff, even though I know most of your stuff. And as I went through chronologically everything that you were doing in the eighties, it was like, I have all of it. And it's not because I was like immediately, I understood you. I didn't know who you were when you were doing myth adventures. It was that I was, I was alive in that particular moment where right, I, sure. I was just buying those things. And it was like, I got that. I got that. I got that. And it, it it didn't stop until the '90s before I hit something that like I don't think I picked up that issue. I had everything you were drawing from the moment you started with Myth Adventures, and it's just so like I I didn't even know. I knew once you did Challengers of the Unknown or maybe Amazon, where it's like I know Tim Sale, but before that, I was still buying everything you were doing from the very your birth basically. And and so I I told Alex, I have to I have to do the eighties because I have to talk to you about this stuff. Okay. And so so starting with Myth Adventures. I read that first issue of Myth Adventures like a hundred times. I just thought this is the funniest thing I've ever read. And I was, you know, like okay, I was twenty three at, at this point. And it just you were inking it partly because you weren't confident. Were you, were you happy with it? Were you? Were you like? What was your experience with doing that as a first project? Were you just happy to be there?
2: Uh, I was broke, seriously broke, living with friends, living off of the friends. My rent was a hundred dollars a month, and I couldn't make it. So there's that. So you were happy um, to get a paycheck. I sold out on my tryout, which is. I did a lot of cross-hatching mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff. Because they told me it was going to be black and white. And then I get 26 pages of pencil. pencil and, and Phil was working two up. Just, Had he
1: done comics or
2: just illustrations at really. that point?
1: No. So he was he was not the, the teacher for a
2: storytelling. Oh, the- he certainly was not. <laughs> um, and they gave me a week to, to ink that. 26 pages. Wow. And they expected what I did on the tryout, that level of cross-etching. So every panel, a lot of stuff. And I did it. And pretty much from then on, the relationship between the peenies and and Folio and me just went in the can. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. In the first issue, I'd fill it Said you know they go out in the woods and there's okay there's some trees, and I made them look like trees, and or at least better than what he put down on the page. And that was an example of. And he said, "Look, you do this better than I do. Would it be okay if you if I left some stuff for you." <laughs> I said, "Sure." And I should have said, "Sure," if you double my page, right? right. Because I'm paint ink, not to pencil. Right. But you were new. So anyway, it just got worse and worse. Mm. So that was sad. But He kept doing it. in the meantime, I met Robert Aspirin and Lynn Abbey. Wow. Because Aspirin wrote the original Myth right. Adventure stuff. And I'd done some of my fantasy work and put it up in a fantasy art show that the that Aspirin and Abbey attended. And they saw it and they were looking for Unbeknownst to me they were looking for somebody to draw Thieves' World, which was a popular... Right. And here's a guy who is naive and cheap, and we can probably get him for nothing. And they did. And they said to me, here's the only thing, you have to come to Ann Arbor, which is where we live, because we want to stand over you to watch and see what you do for the first your first book. Well, by that time... I was confident in my storytelling, and as I spoke to the aspirants and also Laurie Sutton, who they poached from Epic, huh. yeah, uh, yeah, with Archie, right, to be the uh, you know the, the seasoned head of judging what can go or what not go. I did a tryout page for her. She said we would hire him at Epic if you're not going to get him, so that I had the gig but at that point I knew that I knew much more than they knew right so you were making contacts so is this
1: where you made a contact with Matt Wagner too?
2: no was that That, that was later okay that was after Thieves World when I realized look I still got nothing <laughs> nobody knows what I do and Laurie said well this is a guy named Mike Friedrich
1: oh yeah we've been talking a lot from about
2: from the that. 70s and he created Star Reach yeah And then became an agent. And Laurie said, why don't you contact him? I'll give you his information. And I did. And I sent him pages. And he said, I agree to represent you. First thing you need to do is come to San Diego. And this is back when it was a comic show. Yeah, not a movie movie show.
1: So San Diego for the Comic-Con specific. It was
2: only comics. Yeah. What year was that? Late 80s. Hmm. Okay. Okay. I did. That's where I met Matt Wagner, Diana Schutz, Bob Schreck. And through them, to My Love. first time. Second time, and that gave me work for five years. Oh, because Grendel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is huge. It is. Yeah. It was. And also, they're all friends of mine. So that was a big thing, too. Wagner's awesome. He is. And... It wasn't until the next year that I went and I met Barbara Kiesel, Barbara Randall at that point, not married to, right? Carl. Carl, and she was partly there as a D.C. representative to look for talent, and I showed her some uh, pages that I'm still pretty proud of, actually. But nice, but they're uh, very levered rockety.
1: Oh, cool. Jamie or Bertha.
2: Oh, Jaime. Yeah, yeah. I mean Jaime. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's Absolutely. what I mean,
2: that, that would But that kind of storytelling. And also three panels on a page. A lot sure. of it. Because he's it. did co influenced himself. <laughs> Actually Beto did a story that was four panels on a page and I said, that's a really clean way of telling and and then three would be better. Mm-hmm. Clean, more, clean r- is more room a, for the art. You know? Clean is the very
1: definition of both yeah. of those guys.
2: Yeah. And Barbara said, well, it's very nice Love and Rockets, but we don't publish Love and Rockets. Um, we have a guy that Jeanette Kahn, who was the head of DC at that point. Mm-hmm. She was very interested in uh, finding people from the movie TV world to come into comics. And Jeff was one of those people. And so she put us together. Oh, cool. Okay. And yeah, then we went looking for something to do.
1: Was this before... This was after Kamiko or before Kamiko? Kamiko. Yeah. Because I'm thinking of Amazon, obviously. But, but the it other all, stuff... It was. all
2: jumbles. Certainly the published work, the first published work with Jeff was after a bunch of Kamiko stuff.
0: Okay, after Kamiko.
1: Because, cause boy, Amazon, I thought, for me, was... The first time where, like, I, I had seen your Grendel, I had seen every, obviously, everything else you had done. But when you did that with C, uh, Siegel, Steve Siegel, Steve Siegel, when you did that, it was like I saw what you were going to be to some degree. I, I, there was more space in it, and
2: it was, it was bigger. Well, it was beautiful. Here's the thing: um, Steve wrote that intentionally for three panels on a page. Which is your wheelhouse, which is what you wanted to do. Because he had three voices going at one time that played off of each other. There was the, the comic book voice. There was the inner voice of the reporter. Right. And there was the printed word that the reporter used, which always was a polished version of what the inner voice was. Mm-hmm. And and I told him, look, you ruined me for... Rest of my life, and that went right up until well now. So you're still really proud of that? Well, no, no, no I, I'm. Yeah, well, yes, I am. But also, I'm still trying to find a writer who will acquiesce to three panels on a page.
0: No, oh, interesting.
2: Although Tom King has told me, you think it's very, it's a very interesting problem to solve. Because
1: he wants nine panels on a page all the time. Well, he, at least with not with Lee,
2: no. That's true. With with Lee Weeks and Lee's the well, he's that that, top top five guys working now at least. That Elmer Fudd thing was beyond. And and date night. That that was the second annual.
1: That was so good, but but with like Miracle Man with uh, what's his name Gerard's Uh, the 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 guy that he works with a lot of times with uh, Babylon and and, and different things with Mister Miracle. Uh, I don't know. Oh, the King Oh. He does a lot of uh, similar to nine panel grids in, in a lot of his work.
2: King well does. Sim would work with twelve panel grids and it would be nothing but Cerebus's face and dialogue. Yeah, and Bend is kinda of And You could read thing. that in a second. It wasn't Watchman. Right. Where it took an hour to read a page. Uh-huh. Just because it was back and forth and there'd be a voice off camera. You know, and Service didn't say that, you know, and then you're just off to the races. I mean, it was just
1: But he anyway. switched to other crazy things. God, he was so diverse in his, his
2: right in what he was doing, right?
1: When you were doing <clears> Grendel, <throat> the momentum of that, what he was doing at Wagner was doing, I thought that was like so exciting. Uh, from his own work to then the Panda Brothers, he was changing up every time. So when you had to do it, when he gave you that assignment, was there a lot of pressure to, like, I've got to make my, my statement too? Because everybody was doing such bizarrely different things. Yeah,
2: no, it wasn't because Matt was very constrictive on what he wanted. Ah. It was two stories in one issue, each issue. Uh, the vampire story and then the Orion story. The Orion story was told like a newspaper, so the dialogue and the captions were kind of pasted in and stuff like that, and not no word balloons or anything like that, and a very strict grid. And then the idea was that the vampire stuff was whatever you want to do, and I wasn't ready for whatever you want to do, and I felt constricted by the other stuff though, so it was it was weird. I was I was flattered i was really good friends at this point with matt and it was ultimately important but not that much fun Uh, ah
1: that's really interesting
2: and i have forever given him shit that i my grendel's the only grendel who never put on a grendel mask yeah right so nobody ever asks for my grendel but you did get to do a grendel mask eventually
1: you won an I did, Eisner. I for I,
2: it. I did some uh, some uh hunter stuff. Yeah, Hunter Rose. You got an Eisner, right? The book got an Eisner. Right. I got an Eisner for Superman for All Season. Yes. Right. Which that's true. Right. Which That's different. It's the only Eisner I've got. That's true. In mind. But you were part of the one that got And I was part of Long Halloween. That was,
1: black, was and red, and right? the, the other, black and red, right? Black, white and red, yes. Black, Yeah. All right. So,
2: and that was my first published uh, ink wash work.
1: Speaking of not that much fun, let's uh, talk about Challengers of the Unknown. I I've read that that Jeff Loeb was was asking you more than what was in your wheelhouse at the time that he was he was he was pushing you.
2: Well, it, I wasn't entirely fair with him that uh, I thought I could do stuff I couldn't do. Hmm. So there was that. It was more just how experimental the story was. It was all over the map. Right. It was crazy. And for a DC book, especially. Yeah. And was that
0: was that the first Superman you drew in that Challenger's yes. of the Unknown? And
2: Oh, that's good. Dick Giugiano said no, no, no. <laughs> I, I drew him more like a Fleischer. Dick said no 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 no. And he he took my art, put a piece of tracing paper on it. And drew. This is what it should look like. Oh, I see. So that's what I ended up drawing.
0: Okay, okay. Not so the it was. Fleischer. It was altered. It wasn't the Fleischer one that you. Yeah, attended. he didn't alter
2: it. Mm-hmm. But I had to alter it per his instructions.
1: Well, you're in good company because you're with Jack Kirby in terms of DC making like changes to well, Superman. Well,
2: it's <laughs> Terenko and Murray Severn's face, you know. That's right. <laughs> Faces.
0: Did you and Jeff Loeb essentially hit it off as far as storytelling? Did you think, okay, this
2: is a writer I want to do more projects with? Oh, it with? took a while. He has intense charisma. Mm-hmm. I liked him right away, but I didn't know what to make of him. I see. He was very, he was one of those guys that was going bald and had a long ponytail. This is the, you know, early 90s, right? And <laughs> I've seen guys like that in movies. I remember him saying to me at one point, "Why didn't anybody tell me I was an idiot?" Oh, okay. I said, well, you know, we all thought it, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it. it uh, I went to his office at you know, he had an office at Universal. Mm-hmm. And he had a toy train. I see on the floor, and
0: so he was already kind of a TV movie guy. Oh, he anyway, was
2: very into that, and but he was really smart and really funny and really articulate and really into comics and he said, look, I'm the guy, I'll just tell you right in front, I'm the guy that says, why can't we put a camera on the end of a broomstick and throw it through the window and see what that looks like? Mm. And that was Challengers. So was that
1: was his just, project? Did he want to do Challengers? No. Or who wanted to do no. Challengers?
2: Neither he or I had any history with Challengers at all. Right. He wanted to do Superman and Batman. Of course. Yeah, and yeah. they no. I see. You can't do that. So it was more what the company and you guys And he with. said, eventually, after running down everything you wanted to do, he said, just tell us what's available. And they said challengers? That was one of them. Uh, he picked that one. What was the others? I have, I have no idea. Uh-huh. Mm. But before we go into the,
0: the Jeff Love Tim Sale, Tim Sale, Jeff Love world, Billy 99. That was published in 1991 and a bit, had a bit of a dark edge to it, a bit of a political twist. One of the... I think catchphrases for that was, it's 2 o'clock, do you know where your rights are? Yeah. Uh, we spoke a little bit earlier, you said there was a bit of a watchman influence on it. In, Tell in us that, about no, that.
2: in that catchphrase.
0: As far as a catchphrase, okay.
2: Not so much otherwise. It, but but it was a time when people were telling vigilante stories, V for Vendetta, things like that. I mean, Not political vigilante stories. Right, political vigilante, yes. I was very interested at that time in... Politically activated stories. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some of that was because of V, which I think is a great piece of work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, much more than Watchmen. And that was more Sarah, the writer. Sarah Byam is the writer. And I shared it all with her, but inevitably I was about the art. hmm And I had uh, just discovered uh, Batman Year One and right. Meza Kelly. And therefore, I, I discovered the brush in a different way I'd known it before. Now, I used a duo-shade paper, I guess, to have more control. It was going to be black and white. And I wasn't ready to trust the ability to reproduce ink wash very well. Right. I'm still not. I'm still kind of iffy about it. My Batman black and white story is terrible because of the way it's reproduced. I mm. Oh, I see. The reproduction of it. Been, I yeah. And I, and I remember looking at it and thinking, you know, fucking Warren could do this in 1965. Why can't you guys do, do it
0: now? Reproduce it correctly. Yeah. Anyway,
2: there was that. But, but yeah, so there's a lot of Mazakelli in Billy. In Billy 99. As far as the art goes. And I, I lettered it, too. Oh, okay. Um, which is the first thing i lettered since these world. Yeah. And that was the basis of my lettering, and that was the basis for Richard Starkings making a font of my lettering, which is now the only thing that is used whenever I letter anything. Yeah. Or whenever I draw anything. And that was in what? That was in Billy 99. Uh, yeah, he lettered it.
1: But, but you lettered, you were doing, they used lettering in your heroes too, right? To some degree. They I mean, used. Your handwriting,
2: at least. Richard Starkings of Comicraft genius. He thinks, as do I, that the best lettering is by the artist, because it's part of the art. And he would rather have it be, as is often the case, like uh, Giraud, often, uh, many other French, but also like Travis Cherist and things like that. It's pretty hard to read. So Richard has said, look, for a fee, we will make your own font. And you can always have your Uh. stuff on computer that you can plug it in and so that's how everything is lettered now and Jeff goes so far as to insisting well when he was doing comics uh, Richard is the only person who can letter my work and it's not <coughs> obviously because he's the artist but he feels that Richard these are my words and Richard interprets my words whoever's drawing it best mm-hmm. it's in his contract every time oh, it has to be wow. Richard that's interesting it's one of the great things about Jeff.
1: That's great. <laughs> I had mentioned Heroes, in the TV show.
2: Yeah, uh, the opening credits. And I didn't know this, but if you if you go, and it's only like 50 bucks, anybody can buy my font from Comicraft. Hmm. There's a uppercase, lowercase, and a brush brush font. And the brush font is used for the credits in Heroes. And I didn't know they were going to do it. Jeff said, look, watch, there's a surprise for it. That's great.
1: (laughs)
0: That is great. Going back to Jeff Loeb, early 90s, he looks like that guy in those movies. Yeah. So then after Challengers...
2: Uh, Shadow of the Bat. Oh, yeah. Just work for hire. Work for hire stuff. Terrible. I didn't like the stories at all. Oh, I see. Somewhere earlier, I'd met James Robinson at San Diego. I think he was up and coming and Matt got to know him. And so he's part of the Matt crew. Uh Uh-huh. And he was a a guy who would periodically call and just chat on the phone. Same with Matt. Uh Uh-huh. And James drops that he sold a script for a Legends of the Dark Knight Uh to Archie. Was that Blades? Yeah. And I said, do you have an artist? No. Would you like to do it? Yes. And I told Jeff. And... Jeff was like, fuck, how do I get one of those? I want to do that. Well, they don't repeat. Artists or writers, Jeff, sorry. Hmm. But Jeff being Jeff, like, called Archie. Oh, okay. And wangled him into doing another one. Right, with the power of his charisma. It's pretty powerful. Oh, okay, that's cool, okay. And I think also Archie liked what I did. Yeah, sure. You know, so there was that. Because uh-huh. it was awesome.
1: I mean, Blades is is, and, and you're you're in the growth it's period. Hard to tell. I love. For me,
2: it's hard to tell. It's so overwritten. Yes. So it's hard to tell. Myself. But
1: your double pages. I mean, your some of that stuff is really strong. In a way that Challengers is, like, you're working through stuff. You've developed a lot between those periods. Mm-hmm. It's it's a good, I mean, your draftsmanship,
2: yeah. It's, I haven't looked at it in a long time, but thank you.
1: And they're just, Legends of Dark Knight at that moment is just hitting on all, because you do that, and then, and Wagner does Faces, which just is great. And then you do the, I mean, like, it's just running like crazy at that point. And that's good one, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, has to be. Yeah, he's just well, and it. also everybody wanted to do Batman, and that was the whole idea of of legends, which is and and why it would have so much turnover is because so many people wanted to do Batman.
0: Is it because the movies, like the Michael Keaton movies, were out? So no, it was yeah. before that, even before.
2: Okay, he's just fucking cool. People want. He's a
1: cool guy. Yeah, I mean, they're getting to do without the yellow. I mean, it's 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 letting people do yeah. like, the one that they, they the think the raw so. yeah. the raw
0: Batman. yeah. Yeah. The one that shoots people.
2: And so Jeff said, how do I do it? And talked Archie into it. And so he started to do this thing that was at least partially inspired, although I think the legend has become more than the reality, partially inspired by the um, Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams Halloween in Rutland, Vermont. Yeah. Issue. Hmm. And Jeff would say, well, it used to be DC would do a Batman Halloween thing every year. Hmm. No, they didn't. They did pretty much that one.
1: <laughs> Marvel did a lot more of them than Rutland. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And at some point, it wasn't going to be, it was decided not to be a, um, a Legends thing. They were going to put them all in one issue. So that's why it's three issues long, the first Halloween special. Right. That was when Jeff and I first started to learn how to work together. Oh, okay. That's cool. Because it, it was a long slog before, because it, it, he would sort of describe things to me. Like on the phone. And, I, and I'd draw something, and I thought maybe I was more of a co-collaborator on, yeah. the fo- on the phone. On the phone, yeah. And he would always shoot it down and say no, whatever I came up
0: with. So, like, thoughts that you would originate on it, he would say no to those, as far as a story. Okay. Or just
2: a scene. So he, the first Halloween special, it was when he first called would call me... And he had broken down the whole thing on a legal pad. You take a credit card, make a page out of that as a stencil, right? make it, and just make notes, and he'd describe it to me. And so we got to know each other. Remember that time in Casablanca when, you know, or that time Neil allowed him to this, and we really got to know each other. It'd be like five hours on the phone.
0: Oh, uh, cool. and I'd,
2: I'd be taking my own notes. And it was a lot less redrawing of stuff because of that. And I remember finishing it, and Jeff came up here, and we were going to do a store signing in Seattle. And I'm driving him to the store, and I said, you know, I don't think there was a single page that I didn't look forward to drawing in this story. I don't know if I'll ever have that again. He said, don't say that for credit. (laughs) Jeff said that? Yeah. You're gonna jinx it or something, you know? Because he it, felt
0: like something was special was happening between you guys.
2: He didn't say that, probably. But don't say maybe this will never happen again.
1: Right? Don't. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> do do you think this was because it was Batman does Batman speak to you I mean like was that one of the reasons because yeah I do yeah because it's so obvious that with Batman you come alive in terms of that in a way that you
2: weren't engaged with challenges It's weird because um, I, I didn't really grow up with Batman right but he's a cool character I mean I watched the TV show and I loved the Adam stuff but I didn't I often didn't buy it right because I just bought Marvel, uh-huh. had to do that. Yeah, there was something visceral about it.
1: Yeah, because you just instantly. He,
2: to those the way he conceived of the character and Gordon, um, and that was also coming off of Year One. I mean, Gordon was smoking in the, in right. the first thing, and uh, you know, so it. Well, anyway, and then madness, and then I think choice There was fears, which became choices, or it was choices, and then became fears. The second one is the Mad Hatter. The third one is the retelling of Christmas Carol.
1: Ghost. Yeah.
0: You're ta- you're referring to the three one shot stories. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: It's the first time where I've seen you draw a horse. Just to be really like, my horse thing. Yeah, well you I know you did other like earlier like dr- drawings and You means the
2: scarecrow. The
1: scarecrow horse. That's the one that's
2: like <laughs> those are pretty good drawings.
1: Those are really good. <laughs> that's a good yes, horse. Yes, they <laughs> are. I don't know how
2: I pulled that out. What and that the was
1: the Tim Sale horse that I I, I picked and that I, I loved. But that was the first one I saw. I've since seen like in your book that you you, you were drawing horses on postcards and everything else. You were you were interested in postcards yeah. and horses. But that's the horse where I was like, Whoa, that's a horse."
2: Yeah. That's well, a, horse. a lot of that was the Patrick Magoon too, the adaptation.
1: Oh yeah. I just
2: felt that I completely changed the character, the look of the character.
1: No, were you looking? Nobody's at, ever mentioned it. Were you looking at the the comics too, like the Dan Spiegel stuff, or or no. the only the, the 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 actual film, the
2: Magoon, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. yeah, you changed the character completely, yeah. but you. You know, you don't. I don't know if they they talk about it enough. You changed the Joker completely too. You 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 cha- with the teeth. You changed poison ivy. they
2: never said anything to me it's just shocking yeah um, yeah. they, they had these kind of
0: cool caricature type looks to them I, I, I mean they're, any, anyone who's seen him once they'll remember those
2: pictures
1: those three characters Scarecrow Joker and Poison <laughs> Ivy mean, I thought you just
2: took it in a different direction <laughs> well Ivy I was inspired by Black Orchid oh yeah the Gaiman and McKean book and I never thought I'd have to draw her again much to my chagrin right so I gave her all those leaves. And <laughs> That's a pain. <laughs> yeah, it is. So anyway. But that was the only thing. The Joker wasn't, if it, if it was inspired by anybody, it was the Grinch. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And the Scarecrow was the Batchelor Goon. Sure. Scarecrow and Romney Marsh.
0: So now, um, before you did the the long Halloween Batman in 1996. You and Jeff Loeb went over to Marvel, worked on Wolverine Gambit Victims in 1995. Were you guys essentially kind of on that growth curve of collaborative storytelling? Was it a different kind of process with that Marvel story versus the Batman stories? Tell me about that. And how did that get set up? Was that just Jeff Loeb kind of talking to someone at Marvel? Was that a
1: money thing?
0: Yeah. What was that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Total money. That's
2: what I thought. It was a money thing. Okay. But yeah, it was a total money grab. I see. Okay. And I mean, Jeff said, look, these are the two. He'd been in the ex-office, and he knew they were the two top people in comics. Uh-huh. And I knew it as soon as I did it, and all of a sudden, teenage girls were... It was like the Beatles or something. Oh, I see. Draw me gambit. <laughs> the only thing I found interesting about them was that they were two guys who thought of themselves as tragically spurned or been done wrong guys by a woman right and they held that image of themselves with them oh okay that's interesting and i said let's explore what bullshit that is <laughs> and it just got away from jeff he and he admitted later he he just he didn't get around to it he was fucking around with other stuff in the story and that That's the biggest failure, in my view.
0: To not explore that aspect. That we've that. ever had. No,
2: it's a whole thing, except for the money. Now, I did make enough money that I rented a house on the beach in Malibu for a month in the which summer. Place. Yes. Which was not cheap, based on and Gambit.
0: Wow, that's cool. Because the revenue was based on percentage of sales at that point, wasn't it? I don't know. They paid yeah. us a lot of money. Well, there you go.
1: Speaking of money, I, I wanted to ask you about Image at this point, too, because... Yeah, you I got, got less blow. for that. You got less for Deathblow? But that was where everybody else was cashing in like that crazy. That was the whole
2: point of doing Death Blow. Let's, let's hear that. And it didn't work out that way. Why not? Well, first of all, I wasn't selling the way that other... I didn't sell that book the way that other people were selling books. But,
1: well, but you actually could tell a story. I, I mean, not yeah. to be editorial, but like...
2: Look at Image Comics in the 90s, and you'll see how much importance they put on telling a story.
0: Yeah, it's actually hard to follow those stories. I looked back at them. Yours
1: is one of the only one that I, I actually bought and could read and continue to read, because right. it was... You oh, obviously
2: just, know how to tell a story. awful. I was hired to imitate uh, Jim Lee imitating Frank Miller doing <laughs> Sin City. There you go. Look, the writing was awful... The stories were terrible. (laughs) Uh, I was always behind deadline. You know, I would get, oh, I'm so sorry, the script is so late. We need it tomorrow. That kind of stuff. And it just... Terrible experience. It would have been fine if there was if there was that cash cow.
1: If you were getting it like because a lot of people that was it that was their best experience in comics in terms of from a money perspective. They that? made money at, at Image. Yeah, at Image and and you and that was really I broke one, the mold. It was one of the only readable ones I ever I ever saw. It wasn't very good in terms no. of the story, but at least the panels. Made sense, it made sense. Right, right. to me. I actually liked it in that context.
2: Well, thank you. Uh,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. I wish I'd enjoyed doing it.
1: So, um, Batman: Long
0: Halloween. You know, that's probably a lot. Of, that's a big fan favorite, I think, um, of a lot of the things you've
2: done. The touch point. It's absolutely the thing that changed my life. Yeah. My career. And yet, at the time, it was just another thing to do—a continuation of what we've been doing. Right. right. And and Jeff knew it was ambitious in, on his end. From a much writing more end. on my on his end than my end. Okay. That he when he was writing movies with his writing partner, his writing partner would make fun of him for his plot ideas. And it to hear Jeff had to do murder mystery where if you guess it in the first three issues, you got ten more to go. <laughs> What kind of a drag is that? Yeah, sure. um, And yet it all worked out. Yeah. um, I I learned a lot. I was worried that I'd be able to pencil and ink a book a month, which I still kind of can't believe I did. In fact, I I asked Klaus Janssen to ink me, and he declined. Why? Why? I think because he didn't want to take it on, that's all. It's just a big job for a year and stuff like that
0: yeah it's a dedication right
2: there was he
1: the guy you you were
2: gonna I mean was he your first I, I talked with Archie and I said I want you know I want something, somebody graphic and I was looking around and I, I thought of Angelo Torres because of his work on Creepy and Eerie sure but he hadn't done anything except sort of imitate Mort Drucker and Mad for a long time and he's an old man he turned it down we talked about a few other people, but then it was Klaus, and I'm sure Klaus, I'd love to work with Klaus.
1: What Miller did in Daredevil is, it, I mean, that's a collaboration.
2: Yeah. Anyway, Klaus's approach to ink is closer to mine than a lot of people's. Because it's an Alex Toth kind of blackness and things. I mean, totally. Well, different. it's graphic. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's tactile, sort of, and of way really tactile. I like that word. Well, there's a lot of texture.
0: Yeah, there is. I know what you mean. So 1998, Superman for all seasons. I think most comic people have read those four issues. They're pretty incredible. I love them. Uh, Jim, Jim, you've obviously read those. And I feel like it, they really capture who's, what Superman should look like, what he should feel like when you read him, the emotions that go, revolve around Superman. Can you tell us a little bit about that collaboration with Jeff Loeb as well?
2: Sure. Uh, well, I, I knew, my my personal pitch to DC was, you have two of the three icons in comics. And we've done a lot of one of the two that you own. And I'd like a chance at doing the second one. And it's going to be a, a difference between the dark and the light. Right. So my approach is going to be really different. Yes. But they didn't expect what I was giving them. Uh-huh. They made you change it to some degree, right? Some of the: characters. Well, and some of that was absolutely reasonable when I look back on it. Um, I wanted Clark to look like a farm boy. I would wanted Superman to look like he didn't have to go to the gym to work out. And so the, the fact that he's eight feet tall, he's only mentioned once in the in the book, but he's supposed to be this high school kid. who grew up on a farm, Kansas. I wanted it to be clear that he was super as Clark, but not stand out in a certain sort of way, right. And
0: in a humble sort of way.
2: And I also, you know, I so I played with the humble and farm boy probably too much at first, and he ended up looking simple in the brain.
0: Oh, okay, like of uh, of mice and men, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Like he could break a rabbit's neck by accident. Mm-hmm.
2: As the Hulk does in Hulk Grey. so um, <laughs> Nice. Full circle. Chirello came to my, I learned later, came to my defense in the D.C. offices. Because people were ready to fire me, I'm told. Why? Because they didn't want Clark Kent looking like a dumb fuck. Okay, I see. Um,
0: because of the simple approach,
2: okay. Yeah, it wasn't because of the, the thin lines or otherwise. And thank goodness... I think the, the real strength of the book is all in the first issue. I don't really care about the rest of the other you know, three. Personally. You're right. That's, that's the one that... Um, it's the most Rockwell... And I knew Rockwell was my touchpoint because I'd... Um, you know, I grew up in the 60s, and I, I kind of aligned him with, unfairly, with uh, right-wing politics. Well, Rockwell? Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of flag, you know. Americana. Except that Americana is different than that. The attention to detail is a part of, pay attention to what's on the desk or what's in somebody's bedroom that tells a story about their character. And I just got so into it. And because I was doing pretty much only pen work, very little black, and the rest of it, I knew I wanted to, be the have the colors to take care of all that. It was just it felt just right right away. It was blue lined, which is something they don't do anymore because of computers. But it was actually painted. I don't know if I should explain blue line or not. Yes, sure, please. okay. Uh, it's a process leading to a way to color of printing the black and white artwork on a piece of uh, sheer acetate then laying that acetate on top of a chemically treated piece of board and shining a light through that, such that when you pick up the acetate, there's a blue, all the black is in blue, non-reproduction blue on the board. And so the, the uh, colors can paint right on that. And then you lay the uh, the, black ac- uh, the acetate with black line on top of that and photograph that as your thing. But there's all kinds of problems with it, with registration and stuff like that, and it's now obsolete because of computers. Oh, I see. Um, and I think it was probably the last thing that was printed that way. Certainly in this country, I'd seen it done in Europe, and mm. I just thought it was a great way to do it. Anyway, I love the, just the contrast between Batman and and this, both in tone and in artistic style. And then I wanted Eisner for it, so DC shut up. And, there you go. Um, <laughs> That's how that goes. Who so did the colors on that? Bjarne Hansen, and he was the friend of Teddy Christensen. Oh, so good!
1: That Superman book he did was great. Yeah, it, isn't it? Yes, is great. It, it is great. I've taught that before. That's a great Superman. Well, which one? Book. Oh, oh, the man for uh, the uh, the one that he did about doing the Superman project, like
2: like getting assigned Superman. You the I'm talking about? No, it, it's, it's, not, a, it's a Plane, not that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, that one. Okay, before that, he did a, a Superman book without permission.
1: Oh, I know the one you're talking about, too.
2: Is it, That's the one you're talking about? He, he's The cover is, he's open, yeah. Yeah. That was my first introduction to Teddy. Oh, and, he's
1: so good. But, yeah. But that, uh, the, he's
2: the others. a really great, sweet man. Anyway, the... Um, so then coming back to Batman, I'd learned an awful lot by looking at Rockwell and other... It was my first really introduction and in really looking hard at American illustrators outside of comics. Right. So that I think my work on Dark Victory is miles ahead of Long Halloween. Oh, yeah. Okay. It
1: is, isn't it? Yeah. And that's in
2: 1999,
0: just to clarify for listeners. Yes.
2: Yeah, I finished it, uh or actually I was going over the color guide's in Pasadena as I had just moved to Pasadena in 2000. So I know that deadline.
0: Yeah, Dark Victory, I was going to ask what kind of, let's say, I don't want to say mistakes or things, but what had you learned from your previous storytelling to put Dark Victory together, but you added an aspect I didn't predict, which was you're actually looking at illustration outside of comics at the time. And so that was part of how Dark Victory turned out, as far as those panels.
2: Yeah, it wasn't about the storytelling so much as the just the ink quality, the like actual pictures. My my ability to draw,
0: right? Was wow. So, like, what kind of illustrators? So you saying Rockwell. What are some others that come to mind that you were looking at?
2: Kobe Whitmore, um, Frank McCarthy, Al Parker, Noel Sickles. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, Sickles could really illustrate these comics. I can give you half a dozen.
0: Right, that's pretty cool. Now we're getting into the early 2000s. So you guys essentially did a lot of great work at DC. You had done that random Gambit Wolverine story, and then you guys kind of did a few things in a row over at Marvel, the color series. It was almost like Silver Age retellings of these characters, and you said you had read a lot of
2: these comics from the 60s. How did that all come about? There were times when, especially in... Spider Man Blue, I think. Yeah. And it was hard for Jeff because I wanted to specifically reference some of the Lee Romita stories right after Romita came on. So, let's say, issues 43 through 48.
1: You did that other vulture, didn't you? The, 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 the young. Blackie. Guy. I did Blackie. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember. I remember that Sorry. that was so Ramita. I mean, and, and yeah. great Ramita, but you, you were doing Ramita there.
2: The whole thing was my attempt to do Ramita, and I knew people were probably going to expect me to do disco. Uh, but my love of Spidey was Ramita, and my love of Gwen was Ramita, and it was really the impetus was Gwen. I see. They were, and we, we've Jeff and I have said this in print. They were about to come out with the first. Kirsten Dunn's Toby Maguire movie where they took this blonde actress and gave her sort of red hair, not even really red hair uh, and made her Mary Jane. And we were like, fuck, everybody's going to forget Gwen. And we would not have that. So we wanted to have Gwen and Peter be the... Even though with the Face of the Tiger is going to yeah. be in there, right. we wanted to have the two gals were sort of fighting over Peter. Peter doesn't right. know what to do with it. Yeah. the time of his life. And poor Harry um, Osborne and then, just... and then Harry's a part of the story. But right. um, Peter on a motorcycle. But you get yeah. But you get uh, you get to have all this flirtatious stuff, and you also get to have some of the great villains, Craven, who I did not do very well. I regret really because no. I think he's a great visual. But the Vulture. I would have loved to have done the shocker, and yeah, we wanted to do the rhino. Jeff really wanted to do the rhino. I didn't want to do the rhino that much, but you know that kind of thing. So it was really, an, Jeff had to wend his way through that because it wasn't he wasn't feeling it emotionally the same way, and yet he had a wow finish that knocks everybody out, especially boys. It's a it's a weepy love story for boys, really, um, same way that Casablanca is. Oh, I see. Daredevil, for all its strengths, of which there are many, wasn't really much of a whole. We had two issues of this origin story of Peter's relationship with Chip, with his dad and the tragedy of the deaths and all that stuff. And then we went our way through a romantic comedy through the rest of the book. Right. So it was really two things going on. And it was a lot of fun to draw hmm And each moment worked great. It just wasn't a, a whole. So that by the time we got to the Hulk Grey, that really worked as a whole. All takes place in 24 hours. Uh, Jeff's brilliant idea of why does Betty love the Hulk? It's because she only knows a monster, her father. Right. Um, and her sympathy for Bruce, but it's really her attraction to the Hulk. Yes. That was the mystery and then Jeff explains it and it, uh, he also takes her through the seven stages of grief all within 24 hours and i got to draw the goddamn hulk <laughs> the or or the inedible bulk as i right right based him on
0: although goddamn hulk sounds
2: pretty cool too um the desert yeah was so much fun it a lot desert. of uh, uh european work so um Giro and Book, uh, who does Bouncer. Yeah,
1: oh, yeah. sure.
2: Um, Absolutely. So, a, a lot of
1: that stuff. What about Kirby? Because you haven't said, because uh, K- the other two.
2: He wasn't a big influence on.
1: Because I didn't see it there, and no. that's interesting. But it's like, but how could it not be? I mean, the Grey Hulk, once you say Grey Hulk, it's like you think that. But that's not right. what I saw in it, and nope. that's interesting, too.
2: No, to it's me. much more Marie. Oh, okay. Um, Marie Severance Hulk. Yeah, that makes Marie sense. Marie and an ape combined, that was the... And actually, trivia, or soon-to-be reality, uh, Jeff and I are doing a one-page story of the inedible, inedible bulk in some Marvel something 1000, just like Detective 1. Oh, cool. And it's a barely a reimagining of, a, of three panels in an in, inedible bulk story where he's walking down the street, and uh, in the in the Severn story, a cannon shoots him right in the back, and it just blows up, and he, he's licking a popsicle that he's just gotten, and he says, mmm, Bulk, like this avocado lime bar. <laughs> and, and then we pull around to see his face, and he's just, somebody, you know, somebody say something or something like that, somebody... Both felt a gnat, in the you know that kind of thing, and so we're gonna do something like that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) And it was between that and Doctor Doom, which is the one that was the one that got away from me uh, that I wanted to do with Jeff that we never got around to at Marvel. Um, I'd love to do I because I love the origin story with Boris. Right. It's at the end of one of the annuals. I can't remember which one. Oh, yeah. It's like a five-page story or something. but
1: Oh, it, it, the Fantastic Four like, annual. It begins, like, yeah, it begins with him on six, the throne. Yeah. And
2: so, so good. He calls for Boris. And
1: that opening splash page. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Which, you know, and I've got lots of questions, but I'm <coughs> uh, quite going on that because I know people that you... That you um, most admire amongst the 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 artists that influences, and you don't mention Wally Wood and both in terms of Daredevil and now that Doctor Doom. Because I think of Doctor Doom, obviously Kirby, but those those Amazing Adventures uh Doctor Doom stories are so good too. Is Wood not somebody that is in your not
2: for superheroes? Own?
1: Ah, not. Even with Thunder Agents, so what, what is interesting to you with what, if, if not Superhero? Because they're
2: the Spirit, Spirit on the Moon. Ah. I kind of like him better as an inker than a pencil letter. I never liked right. the, the, uh, you know, soft porn stuff. I never. The Sally Forth. There's some of the, uh, what about his EC stuff? Because you yeah, really some of, of these some of the EC stuff, absolutely. So Spirit on the Moon, that's
0: when, what, Jules Pfeiffer wrote it, and then yeah. he, he ghosted for Will Eisner, and, yeah. and the spirit detective went to the moon. Okay.
1: Because I know you like airs, airplane stuff, and Wally Wood, I and mean, Alex Toast does the best, but Wally Wood does some killer air fights. Where? in um Both in terms of... Some of the E C stuff he does a few, but in, in the Warren stuff he does a couple of really good air fight battles. I still remember
2: those. Um but I was gonna say uh Skymasters. Yeah. Yeah. So oh. him inking oh, yeah, Kirby, he's a Kirby, great Kirby. And, those are and, those are nice. And Kirby's work is great in those. Yeah. Uh and what takes it over is he does. Right. Which is on the inking fine in at, at times. Um I mean, I always feel that way about certain anchors like Kevin Nolan, who takes over. But, he, yeah, but he made it better. But I mean, he took you know, over, just, yeah,
1: he took over that um, Spectre story with even Ditko. And I don't like anybody, st- like, taking over Ditko completely. It looks like a Nolan story, but it's so good. I don't know that. Oh, yeah, he yeah. did He did a very short. It was a short, and it was a Spectre story. And and he inked and it's it's awesome. I'll well, send I'll send it to well, you. Well,
2: there's that, but um, well, it was a Kelly Puckett um, Batman and Superman story. It's pretty well known and it's amazing. And it's Robin is fascinated with Superman and wants to be introduced to him. So Batman introduces him and Robin is just ah oh, man, is so cool. Look at him, he's so great. Right. And Batman says he's thunder. He's a lightning. He's an alien. Hmm. Do not trust him. And there was a time when Kelly Puckett was really writing just the way that Darwin or uh, Bruce Tim could write, right to the core, yeah. very simply, a character. And a lot of his Batman Adventure stuff was just perfectly right on, spot on. But that Nolan's story was great. I, I think he inked Casada um, terrifically on Sword of Azrael. I was told... Joe didn't like it because he took it over, but, you know, just beautiful, beautiful work. Mm. And he's a really sweet guy. Right.
1: He's so good.
2: I mean, yeah. he's he's
1: great. There's so many of those guys that are just like, people don't understand how
2: good they are. Well, he doesn't work very much. Yeah. And, you know, lives in the middle of Kansas. And-
0: in 2005, your artwork was in Hero Season 1. You guys had talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, so how'd that gig come about
2: exactly to do that? I get a call from Jeff, who says there's a guy named Tim Kring that has had a successful show called On NBC for like 10 years, and it's coming to an end. And so he, the next thing he wants to do is this story, and he's written a script for it, and I've guided him through the script a little bit. And it's kind of a superhero story, but he wants to make sure that when he sends the script to NBC executives, That he can do all he can for it, so he wants some illustrations to go with the script. So he puts me in touch with Kring, and I talk to Kring, and we talk through some stuff, and that's where the atom bomb vision comes from. Right. And so I did that, and the next thing I know, I get a phone call from Kring's office saying he'd like to see me in his office at Universal. Oh, cool. And I show up, and there's a producer and a director and a couple of other writers and Kring there, and they'd already sold the pilot, or they were going about to make the pilot. Right. And they were at a point where they had decided that artwork should be a part of telling the story. Sure, makes sense. And so they wanted to know my painting ability. And I said, well, I'm colorblind. I can't paint. But you have a computer on your desk. Let me show you uh what we do in comics for when I do ink wash it's colored in on the computer and it looks like painting and so I did and I was hired and uh, I show up at a location shoot somewhere outside of uh, San Bernardino um and I get there just in time for lunch <laughs> and we meet in this trailer and uh I met the prop master who was going to be my liaison and It turns out she lives like a mile from where I was living, so she was my go-between for all the stuff, all the things people remember at that meeting. There are like twenty people at the table. The director's there; he's trying to bounce some stuff off of me. He's thinking visually, blah blah. blah. It sounded kind of Hollywood to me. Oh, okay. It was Hollywood? Uh huh. But the person I was going to be working with was the prop master, and her name is Gabe Perello. And she had worked for a long time on the previous show that uh, Kring had done, crossing not the last, crossing Jordan, something like that. And they were reluctant to film something and then just give me a screen capture, which I repeatedly said to them, "It's going to save you a lot of time if you just do that. If you're going to ask me to draw something and then when you go to film it, it's not what you want." I, mean, I have to redraw it. It's not like moving a camera, 10 inches to the right, and you can just make it happen. I have to redraw this. Thing. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, that was something Jeff had to learn. Can you just, you know, shift it to the, <laughs> you mean redraw it? <laughs> yeah, right, I redraw I the, the entire thing. Before. Yeah. Um, and Jeff actually used that line in the writer's room to directors when we were talking about things, so he repeated me to back That's me. funny. Anyway, um, so it took a little bit of time, but it happened during the, uh, the pilot where they the show figured it out. Film it first, give me screen capture. That was the most obvious one. But the first thing that was, the first scene with the art is in the artist's studio, and he's destroying all these pictures. They made multiple copies of all the pictures just to make sure they had enough. For all the takes they had to do, so a lot of people ended up with props that they could take home. Um, and the first one was an exploding bus uh, that was on the Gaza Strip that Gay had to spend money to buy from uh, from a um, uh, photo house, which she didn't want to have to do. And the, but the second one was the train wreck, and it was uh, and she had a uh, in house guy that was part of the prop department cover color the the bus and uh, you know i didn't like it but it was okay and then she showed me she came actually came i was at a a convention in la and she showed up and showed me what he had done with the train wreck and i said well that is just not going to work at all um and she said yeah i wanted to show it to you and i was hoping you would say that and i said well i got a guy and that was dave stewart oh okay And then he was the only other guy that they used ever. I have a copy of the train wreck on my.
0: Oh, cool.
2: In my house. But it's like, it's one of those things that, what the fuck am I going to do with this? I mean, it's very impressive, but it's six feet by three feet, and it's a train wreck for (laughs) crap. On fire, you know. Yeah, it takes a lot of space. uh, Plus, (laughs) who wants to look at that? Right. Except me. I'll take it. Um, Yeah. That was my first experience with Heroes. And the, and the first season was nothing but fun. It surprised everybody working on the show, how it took off. Yeah. There would be group emails, uh, from the studio or from the people dealing with the studio about how the ratings were through the roof and going up and up and up. It was a good first season. It was. And then a disastrous finale. Yep. Like anticlimactic. And then, written by Kring, writer's strike, and they hadn't figured out what they'd done wrong at the end of the first season. But I had art in every season. It was just rock paintings or... Oh, okay. Graffiti. Right, right. And I didn't make very much money on it. I I was paid a salary. They say they didn't know, and they didn't know, but that's why you get an agent. I had an agent. That the artwork would drive the show because it had never happened before. And the idea was that I would be getting a salary whether or not they wanted any art that week or not. But not only did they want art every week, they wanted multiple things. There was no scale that, you know, okay, well, if you have to do more than one piece, you get X amount of money in it. And then my agent at the time sold every piece from the pilot right away. That's crazy. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, and he'd already done it. And I said, oh, Tim, I've been involved with these things for a long time. It never really adds up to anything.
1: It took off like crazy. So
2: he this is Mitch Itquiz. So he probably cost me $100,000, $150,000. Okay, that's frustrating. Because in that first season, that that those pieces would... It was have... the only season where there was any money to yeah. be made.
1: Yeah, but that was it. That was it. You yeah. were going to make money off of that without question. Right. So I didn't.
0: Well, thank you, Tim Sale, for this riveting interview so far. Stay tuned for the next episode as Alex Grand and Jim Thompson from the comic book historian podcast explore further into the career of tim sale with the man himself in this cbh exclusive interview cheers everybody